Hey, it's John, the host. We did a live show on October 13th at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. It was sold out, fun, beautiful, insightful, silly. It was everything. A lot of people dressed up in depression cosplay, their favorite symptom or treatment. My kids were there all dressed as dogs because dogs are therapeutic. Enjoy. Please welcome the host of the hilarious world of depression, John Moe. Thank you, Janie. You ever get the feeling you've been somewhere before? <laughs> welcome to the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. If you're joining us via podcast, uh, please know that we are in a large theater that is filled to the rafters because depression has so many fans. People can't get enough of feeling horrible and then being around other people. Maybe because it helps, maybe not. Uh, personally, uh, well, and because podcast listeners, you're listening to this close to Halloween, we have chosen to have a sort of advanced celebration here as we tape the show. And uh, we're having a, a sort of a, a cosplay uh, adventure here among the audience at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota, where we have invited people. We were going to have a, a contest, but nobody needs that kind of stress and competition. <laughs> So we just encouraged cosplay because that's popular uh, these days. And I would, encourage, I would encourage anybody in the audience, if you see somebody in costume, like at intermission or after the show, go on up and ask them about their costume because that's why they wore it, because they love to tell you about it. <laughs> Especially if it's one of those costumes that requires an explanation. You're really doing them a favor. You're connecting with other people, and that's good for your mental health. Um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I was over at Lund's grocery store a few blocks away from here. Lund's and Byerly's, they call it now. I was over at the Lund's and Byerly's grocery store. This was a couple years ago. And something funny happened near the oranges. <laughs> Let me back up. When I was a kid... Uh, stuff started to kind of go wrong in my head. And uh, I felt like I was just different. And I felt like I was uh, in danger. And I felt like I was falling all the time. And I felt like I was in a car with no brakes. And I didn't know until many, many, many years later that what I had was called depression. And it was a thing that a lot of people have, and that was a thing that could be treated, and that was a thing that, with a little assistance, I could leave a, lead a perfectly happy life. Hopefully not leave a perfectly happy life. <laughs> I should mention that my own costume is uh, sort of the duality of depression. I, I'm, I'm dressed up real nice from here up, and then I'm dressed in sweats and socks. Somebody said backstage, why no shoes? And I said, because I'm not leaving the house. <laughs> the best part of these pants, though, I love these pants because they have a little puma on them. Because 
I run fast through the jungle in my gray sweatpants like a puma. There's a, there's such a lie built into the sweatpants industry. Like, let's just pretend these are for athletic people. Oh, yes, I will buy these sweatpants for my workouts at the gymnasium. So I was a kid and I had this thing. And, uh, and the one thing that would always make me feel better was comedy. Um, not even because it was always funny, because a, you know, a lot of the stuff I watched wasn't funny. Much of it was Carol Burnett and Cheech and Chong and George Carlin and Steve Martin and Richard Pryor and early Saturday Night Live, anything like that was, was very funny. But I would even watch like Barney Miller, you know, which I didn't understand. And which I, if I understood it, was also not all that funny. But it was reassuring uh, for my mind, comedy, because it always had a, uh, a setup and a punchline. And I knew the punchline was gonna happen and there was some order being restored in my life just by, by having that there. So I always clung to comedy quite a bit. Now, um, just a few years ago, here in this theater, the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, uh, I used to host a different show that was a radio show, uh, and it went out to radio stations, uh, several of them around the country. <laughs> and it was a dream come true seeming sort of situation because I, I made a lot of friends and the shows made a lot of people really happy and, and uh, a lot of the sort of tone of the show came from my sense of humor, which felt really great, and it was, it, was, uh, it was a very fulfilling thing. But at the same time, every day there was pressure about, okay, who are we gonna get to come out to St. Paul uh, to be on the show that will agree to come out that can also sell a thousand tickets, but will also agree to come out and hang out with us. And that was a lot of pressure. And then each show was like a world premiere of this material that I either wrote or supervised the writing of, and I had to just sort of hope it was funny. And in the meanwhile, it was going out to literally dozens of radio stations, <laughs> and we were hoping that other stations would pick it up and, and not put us like Sunday night at 10. And so it was going out there, and. I found myself getting more and more stressed out. And I learned something, which is that I had the type of depression that converted stress to misery. Now, some people, when they are faced with a deadline, faced with a lot of pressure, they, you know, they get the adrenaline, they get going, they get excited. And instead, I um, curled into a ball, uh, figuratively, because there was never anywhere to actually do that. Um, and I got really stressed out. And so the more I did the show, I thought, this is messed up. This is supposed to be the greatest thing, but uh, somehow I'm, it's, not, it's not working. And then I thought, you know, even if this is a dream come true and the dream job, maybe I should quit because I'm not doing well. And then the show got canceled, which saved me the effort. got canceled because of reasons. Um, <laughs> and I had been thinking, even before this happened, I was thinking, well, 
what about if I did some opposite things? What if instead of doing a show in front of a thousand people, I went into a tiny room and talked to just one person? And what if instead of trying to uh, get it out to radio stations, I just tried to get a show out to people? And so what if I did a podcast, right? And, uh, and what if I, uh, it, so I, I, I was kind of thinking like, well, what do I have to work with? You know, like if you're gonna make dinner, you open the, the cupboard and the fridge to try to see what ingredients you have. And I thought, well, okay, what do I have? I mean, usually in that situation, I make an omelet and it's not very good. Um, and I thought, well, I know a lot of comedians and musicians who've become my friends and they're really wonderful people. And also, whenever I, seem, whenever I talk to people about depression and mental health, there's a great response. People really are, are eager to talk about this thing instead of covering it up all the time. And I thought, well, what if I, what if I combine those things. You know, what if I get comedians whose job it is to spread joy and happiness and then completely ruin them by having them talk about depression? <laughs> Good work. Um, but I also thought, well, why are so many creative people so depressed all the time? And so I thought maybe that would be the focus of the show until I talked to Patton Oswalt about it and he said, no, no, no. There's depressed people everywhere you go. It's just that we're allowed to talk about it at work. If your dentist talked about suicidal ideation, you'd find a different dentist. <laughs> but with comedians, it's okay. And, uh, and so we, I started to put together this show, and uh, everybody kind of got on board with the idea right away, which really surprised me in a, in a very delightful way. And ultimately, we kind of came up with the idea of uh, thinking about what comedians and musicians do really, really well which is they phrase things in such a way that cuts through all the fog in the world and connects straight to your heart. And if it's a comedian that's doing that, what happens when they connect with you is you laugh because you're relieved, because you're not alone. And that is an incredible talent that comedians have. And musicians can do the same thing, not with a laugh, but, but with a lyric or a note even, can connect with you and, and you go, oh, I am understood. I'm not alone. I've made this connection with somebody, and, uh, and something good has happened. I thought, well, what, what if we just apply that to depression, the thing that nobody really is able to define? You know, nobody can really talk about what this thing is, right? And so uh, that became the idea of the show, and we made the show, and we, um, we got this wonderful assistance from uh, the organization Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. They got on board early. I want to thank them right now in this theater for sponsoring us uh, in a very fundamental way. Because those people, and uh, God love them for saying, yes, we'll fund a thing called the hilarious, what is it called? <laughs> That allowed us to go all over the country and make this show and make it reach a lot of people and make it good. Um, so we started this show and, and we really thought it was gonna be, oh, you know, a few people will download it, we'll feel good about ourselves and then we'll move on and go do something about golf or something. <laughs> and then within a couple days of it launching, uh, it was number two on the iTunes chart among all podcasts or among podcasts where no one gets murdered, number one. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
And that felt good, and we got, we got uh, you know, press coverage, and we won some awards, and it was really nice. Um, but then the letters started coming in. And a guy that I went to, the guy that I knew in high school named Don, uh, who went to a different high school, but he was the student body president there, and he was top of the world, nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. I hadn't heard from him in decades. And he wrote to me after our first show and said, I just heard your show with Peter Sagal. Um, because I, I'm a fan of his, and I'm a fan of yours, and, and it, I so, just so happened to be listening to it while I was on my way um, to work, and it, it, was my day, it wasn't my day to pick up my daughter and, and visit with her, because that's my ex-wife's day, but I thought, well, maybe I'll just go visit her at school and tell her I love her and then go kill myself. And I listened to your show, and I thought, well, maybe not today. And, uh, and we got a lot of letters like that. We started hearing from a lot of people, um, volumes and volumes and volumes of people. And, and we started kind of realizing, I started kind of realizing, oh, this isn't a, just a show for people with depression. This is a show for people who are touched by depression, which is to say people, all of them. And, uh, and people really love talking about it. And people really love hearing stories and telling stories. And I noticed that when I was approached by people, um, they didn't have any questions about what we were doing. They just wanted to tell me their story. They had heard a guest on the show tell a story or me tell a story, and they wanted to do the same thing. And so I'm at Lund's by the oranges. And... <laughs> This guy comes up and he says, hey, I've been listening to your show. I really love it. I want to shake your hand. I said, oh, sure. I'm glad you like it. And he tells me about his mental health struggles and the struggles in his family. And the handshake stops. But after a while, I noticed, oh, I'm still, you know, we're still connected here. And then I realized I'm just holding a dude's hand at the grocery store. (laughs) This is new in my media experiences. Um, but that's what it's about, and that's what we've been doing, and that's what we find that people have been starving for. I think we do a good job with the show, but I think people are just really eager to have that connection and hear other stories and hear other voices. So um, we're going to hear some other voices here right about now. Thanks. He is a comedian, actor, and he plays what I thought was the only non-depressed character on the Netflix animated show, BoJack Horseman. (laughs) But maybe that character really is depressed, you just never know. Here's Paul F. Tompkins, everybody. Hello. Hi. John, hi there. Paul, you are wearing... You are wearing a tuxedo. That's correct. Is there a connection with, oh, mental illness? Uh, yes. Um, the, the worse I feel, the more dressed up I want to get. <laughs> I'm so sorry, yet also delighted. She's an author. She's the host of the podcast with friends like these, and she's a frequent analyst on cable news. She's Anna Marie Cox, everybody. All 
almost said dress for success until I realized the topic. You've got the you've got the uh, messy bun. The messy bun of hair on the top. You've got some sweats going. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, is this is this depression around the house that you're rocking? I. You know, I, I did refrain from uh, actually putting food stains okay. on it, but yeah, but I, you know, I have bipolar disorder, so um, sometimes I'm dressed like this, and sometimes I'm dressed like this, but I'm realphabetizing, you know, the refrigerator, okay. so. <laughs> really anything could happen. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes you're realphabetizing the foods you will later spill upon yourself. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Uh, well, the first thing we're going to do is, you know, I thought about how to distribute interviews on a show like this. We're going to have a bit of a discussion. But uh, we, this is also a party that we're having here at the Fitzgerald Theater, so let's have a little bit of fun. We're going to uh, do something called the Wheel of Probing Questions, and I want you all to do it with me like they say on Wheel of Fortune. It's time for the Wheel, Wheel of Probing Questions. All right. Paul F. Tompkins is first up on the wheel of probing questions. This is exciting. There are numbers corresponding to all the spokes on this spinning wheel, and uh, I have corresponding questions to match each number. So let's find out how the interview goes. All right, here we go. That's a number like two. two. That's a number two. Paul F. Tompkins, question number two. Hmm. What piece of art, music, or literature really gets depression right? Oh, I will say, I think Bojack Horseman, number one with a bullet. <laughs> that's, that's very biased. I will also say the TV show Barney Miller, which I watched <laughs> when I was a child, which was a weird... Barney Miller was such a weird show. If you're not familiar with the show, what an odd thing that that was a hit television show when there were only three channels. <laughs> it was about a, a, a precinct, um, a, new, a police, police precinct in New York. Um, they would arrest someone and put them in a cage that was right there in their office. Um, they, they even seemed to, on the props, like they dulled the phones. Like the phones on everybody's desk were like matte. It was weird. Nothing funnier than beige. Yeah, there was, there was something that was very sad. And the opening theme song is maybe the saddest song I've ever heard. How did that go again? First, it starts with that bass, which will make you cry. <laughs> um, I think the bass was like... There we go. That's it. <laughs> Over grainy 70s footage of Manhattan as seen from the water. I forgot that every bass player knows how to play Barney Miller. It's a, it's a bass touchstone. Lesson number one at bass school. So Barney Miller. Barney Miller. I will also say the, the music of uh, Amy Mann, who is uh, going to be out here later this year. Oh. Well, Paul F. Tompkins, thanks so much for playing Wheel of Proving Questions. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Our musical guests perform as the both, and they also performed as esteemed solo artists. Their recent albums are Mental Illness and The Hanged Man. But yet they're on a show about depression? <laughs> Here's Ted Leo and Amy Mann. 
chat a little bit here, and uh, just for our, our podcast listeners' ears, uh, 
identify who you are so that when they hear it, they can say, ah, I recognize that voice as being attached to that name. I'm Anna Marie Cox. I'm Paul F. Tompkins. I am Amy Mann. And I am Ted Leo. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys what it's been like to be uh, public about things that you've dealt with, um, both you know, on stage when you, when you do your work in front of the public or just out in the world. Like now that everybody knows these things about you, is it uh, great or weird or horrible or what? Do they know these things about me? <laughs> we know a few things about you. <laughs> a lot of people downloaded your episode. I feel, I feel like I've been really keeping it close to the vest. <laughs> <laughs> you listen to an Amy Mann album, you're like, what could she possibly mean? <laughs> um, it's been, uh, it's been very uh, gratifying for me. It's been comforting, and, and um, it's, been, um, it's been nice to have people reach out and say they have gone through similar things that they understand and that um, it makes them feel less alone, which makes me feel less alone. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's been a very giving experience. Um, you know how in your uh, introduction you talked about how musicians and comedians like cut through the fog and touch people's heart? Well, as a pundit, it's my job to create the fog. <laughs> <laughs> and I still do that part-time. Okay. Uh, but, you know, ever since I got sober a while back, um, there's actually a phrase we have in the rooms called, uh, you will neither regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And I have been blessed to have that happen. And for me, what it's meant um, is that people don't just come up to me and say, I really liked you on Rachel Maddow. Um, they come up to me and share something. And it's, you know, I think politics is amazing and important and policy is important and we might even talk a little bit about policy here. Um, but I didn't get into journalism to get to know people. <laughs> I wanted to kind of do the opposite of that, but it's, so it's been incredibly gratifying and ironic that actually what my job has become has become closer to people. Mm, yeah, focus has shifted a little bit. Ted, what about you? I think I have a, like a slightly different problem from, from Amy's, which is that um, I, I've certainly been writing about um, things and even depression explicitly for almost as long as I've been writing music, but I often get, you know, painted as a real bouncy, you know, <laughs> up. He's the positive guy who just, you know, has like the answers and, you know, inspiration and, you know, yeah, life, you know. And, um, and it's your uh, punk rock pal. I know. It's, it's interesting because, I mean, that all comes from the struggle for me. You know, it's, um, I don't walk into the room having just come from sunshine. You know, I'm like trying to get to the sunshine. And it has been interesting for the, you know, going on 30 years that, that I've been doing this, that um, there's always a small segment of my audience, though, who gets it from the very beginning. And, um, you know, those wind up being, again, like the really gratifying conversations, the really gratifying emails and, you know, tweets and et cetera. Um, so 
while it's always been a part of, of what I've done, um, being a little more ex explicit recently about um, certain things that I've been through and the ways that I've been handling them has opened up the floodgates in a, in a different way. And um, in addition to making me or allowing me to feel like I'm actually contributing something uh, to the, you know, to the discourse and to the to the world in that way. Um, I feel like I also, you know, like going to a meeting or something. Like I, I get stories that help that continue to help me to process as well. It's been. Has there been any downside of like you know I'm out in, in public, people know who I am, and oh they also know my innermost secrets. Like is that is that does it feel like you're insufficiently armored to be out in the world ever? Yeah. My personal thing is, I don't know, like, I mean, when I write a song, I don't, I, it's, people don't necessarily get, get it correct, the part that I, of myself that I put into it or isn't necessarily correctly uh, surmised by the other, you know, I, I feel like in, in songwriting, there's definitely, you can hide. It can be about you, but not about you. And, and uh, you know, it's not like a journal entry. It's a, it is fictionalized, and like, like fiction, you put your, it's true, but it's not, you know, biography necessarily. I think that it, 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 sometimes it, it's like a crucible, you know, to, to put this stuff out there, and um, you go through, or speaking for myself, you know, I, like I will, I've gone through uh, moments of panic and abject terror, you know, at having at having uh, um, been so uh, blunt about certain, you know, certain things that I've been through out in the world. But um, but when you come through that crucible, you you really are on the other side of it, and I, I can't imagine you can be hurt by people coming at you anymore. You what know? do you mean the other side of? It? Well, um, you 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 know you. It's out there. It lands how it lands. People react how they react, and then life goes on. You know, and you 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 just have to pick up with the with the life goes on. And um, if you're, you know, the the world is full of trolls, and and those happen. But um, boy, you'd have to be a really horrible person to actually, um, you know, have to actually realize the fears that um, we sometimes have in in attempting to share. These things. Mm. The only kind of downside for me, and it's and it's a very it's a it's a small thing in a way, but for me it's it's maybe a bit bigger. Is that um you know talking about you know telling the story of of my unhappy family growing up, um, I have every right to tell that story, but it's also my family story, and you know I try to not as much as I try not to tell their story inevitably the stories intermingle and it's it's a shame to me sometimes you know mm -hmm. that it's like I want to tell my story but I don't want to intrude upon their lives I don't want to I, 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 it's not even so much like I'm, I'm worried that people are going to talk to them about it it's that they have to hear me talk about it mm -hmm. you know and especially with the way families are, people remember things differently, and it, the bigger the family is, a lot of times the, the more different and diverse your experiences can become within the same family. And, you know, I have a, uh, my oldest sister and I have had completely different relationships with our parents, 
you know, different generation, completely different. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, it's it's um, I don't know. I, I sometimes feel uh, I sometimes feel bad about it. You know that I that I've been so open, but that it there are other people that are involved. Mm-hmm. Anna? Um, I I think a little bit about what Paul said. Um, I'm an only child. And, uh, yeah, woohoo, shout out to the only children. So I don't have to worry about competing narratives, really. I mean, unless they're in my head. Um, there are some. Um, but uh, my father you know, did the best he could, and he loves me very much. And it's not his fault that I went through so much pain. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually like, no. He had to hear me talk about that pain like, to someone else. First. Yeah. How about the idea of, of doing what you do, doing the, the art and the performance and the, the <laughs> public product that you do as a form of therapy? It's something that I, I keep hearing from a lot of people in the dozens of interviews I've done for this show. Um, people say, well, no, my, my comedy, getting up there on stage is my therapy. <laughs> Just getting to play music, that's my therapy. We're- Writing about UBI is my therapy. <laughs> 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 I mean, I, I, it feels good to get on stage and perform, especially if it's going well, but <laughs> I, never, I never walked off of, of that stage and thought, I solved a problem here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely learned something. I can't do anything when I'm depressed. I mean, I can't write a song when I'm depressed. Depression is, is the, the, the mechanism of depression. It depresses everything. It does not allow stuff to be created and, and to come out. I do think that playing a show, working on a song, deliberately choosing to do something like that interrupts the flow of thoughts that, will, that are on the depression train that will take you to the depression station. And there's some. There's a lot and to be said for that. You have to live in the depression town. Yeah. <laughs> Am I registered to depression vote here? Depression mayor de- says no. Where are my depression suitcases? It's, depre- it's depression voter suppression. <laughs> Sorry to mock everything you said. <laughs> I regret nothing. That was therapeutic for me. <laughs> As a non-creative person, can I put a word in? Please. (laughs) Or not as creative, um, which is to say that I think a big part of my recovery was actually um, uh, divorcing myself from my work to a certain extent and to feel like I had value if I never wrote another thing in my life, if I never... uh, The nods are making me feel better. Um, (laughs) You know, if I just continued to exist, my value on this planet would be as much as it would be if I wrote another book. So... And that's true for every single person in this room. Ted? Uh, Performing is uh, catharsis for me, which I guess is a a sort of therapy, but I also um, feel similarly to to Amy in that um, when I'm, I don't, like I don't do my best work when I'm depressed, you know, if if I do any work. Um, And, and um, I also, I also, I really relate to what um, what Anna Marie just said too. There, that's a, a real big um, thing: is divorcing yourself. Uh, I don't, you know, when I'm when I'm writing, I don't think about 
how it's going to land necessarily, but I do think about my value vis-a-vis the work that I'm doing, and that's a bad spiral to get into. Yeah, when you put out an album, is, is it like, oh, here is some me that I'm putting out to be judged by sales and reviews? Are you putting your self-opinion in the hands of Pitchfork? To, to a degree, which is why I stopped reading Pitchfork like 10 years ago. Nice. <laughs> I'm very much about uh, letting go of the results. It's like I can't, I, I'm, I'm, I've done a lot of practice around that and that, that's, I also am not a person who really defines myself by my work in the way that some people I know do. Um, I mean, obviously to a certain extent, but I don't. Did that uh, take effort to get to that? I, not really. I mean, I, 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 I feel like I can't, I can't control it. I, like it really isn't, it's, I really am writing for an audience of one, which is myself. And, and, it's, and it's super fun to write and make records and I love it. And I'm like, I'm done. Oh, right, I have to put it out. Like it really feels more like a, an afterthought. Like it's good to have a destination, you know, cause that can sort of push you along you can sort of get into a thinking of like who cares or why should I but but I I really you know to it's, it's very fun for me to to write songs and I so I don't I don't judge myself as I'm doing it yeah. Paul what about you when you when you're like if you do stand-up are you, are you the same person whether you bomb or get a million laughs is it do you feel like the same person uh, yeah, for the most part. I mean, because I've, I've walked off stage after bombing and felt great, and I've walked off stage after a standing ovation and felt terrible, you know? Like, I, it, it's, um, it depends on where you are that day and, uh, and how you're feeling about, about whatever. The, the work, sometimes you can really pour yourself into it, and uh, it can be um, all you need at that moment. And the worst, one of the worst things about depression is that um, when you're doing a thing that you love and you get no joy out of it, you know, it's, 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 and it's, it, you're trying, you don't understand, like, how could this be? This is, I, this is, everything's going great. Like, why, why do I feel the way that I do? And, you know, there's a, there's a big difference between, you know, performing, uh, being in the moment and you being able to let go of that result and say, oh, that was, that was that, it was a live moment. There's so many, you can, it's easy to make excuses and say, well, you know, they, the room was too hot or, you know, um, the, the lighting wasn't right. But I, the, the, one of the most nervous hours of my life was before I recorded my first stand-up album. And it had never occurred to me that it would be a nerve-wracking experience, but I was in the green room at the at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. I was all by myself back there, and all I could think of was, what if no one likes this? What if I put this out to the world and no one cares? And then I had to get to that idea of, you know, well, who am I divorced from what I do? Because so much, I have wrapped so much of my identity up in what I do. So now, if I put this out and people are like, eh, no thanks, then I have to figure out who I am and what's going on. This is all like an hour before I'm supposed to do the show. <laughs> and eventually, it was like, well, I'm not gonna get to it tonight. So. <laughs> Can I point out that, although this may sound very, um, it, it's really interesting to hear these incredibly successful artists talk about this, we all experience it on social media. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like, I'm going to put this tweet out. What if no one likes it? You, too, can experience exactly what Paul F. Tompkins went through. <laughs> right, on, in your own way. In your own way. Yeah. I'm changing my answer to Paul's answer. 
Paul wins the round. <laughs> Ted Leo, Amy Mann, Paul F. Tompkins, and Anna Marie Cox, everybody. <laughs> There's a classic O. Henry story, The Gift of the Magi. Jim and his wife, Della, are a couple living in a modest apartment. You might have heard this story. You might remember it. On Christmas night, Della sells her hair for $20 to a nearby hairdresser to buy a chain for Jim's pocket watch. Later, Jim walks in and sees Della, and Della admits that she sold her hair to buy his present. Jim then gives Della her present, an assortment of combs, useless now. Della then shows Jim the, the chain that she bought for him, and Jim says, well, I sold the watch to get the money to buy the combs, and they're left with gifts that neither one can use, and they realize how far they're willing to go to show their love for each other. Still, it was pretty traumatic for both of them. And Jim and Della, of course, know that trauma can really trigger other mental health issues. So, <laughs> including depression. So off they went to the therapist to learn coping mechanisms. <laughs> and perhaps a better way to route their anxiety and depressive tendencies. Let's take a listen. Della, Jim. In our last session, we talked about how effective counting to 10 was when we were angry before saying anything, and we decided to try 10-ing no matter what emotion we were having. How'd that go for you? <laughs> oh, don't do it here, I bill by the hour. <laughs> well, I, uh, it worked out okay. Yeah, but I wouldn't miss it if we stopped doing it. Me neither, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you agree with me. Still keeping up with the glads then? Yes, we're glad at each other all the time. Though, I wouldn't miss it if we stopped that. That's not funny, Jim. That's not funny at all. Well, no, no, I... I... Never stop gladding me, Jim. I swear to God. It's the light my heart plant needs to grow. Okay, I'm glad you like it. I don't like it, Jim. I need it. I hear you, and I hear what you said. Wait, 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 what is that? What? <laughs> what? Hear you, hear what you said? Did someone, are you, are you seeing another therapist? No, no, I just, I, no. Oh my God, you're seeing someone else, is it Curtis? No, no, I, I just said what my instincts told me to say to her. Okay, let's change, Jim, Della, how was Christmas? It was great, it was best, best ever in a way. In a way. It was lovely and ironic. Conversational pivot. You're just supposed to say fine. Okay. You see, Jim saw these lovely combs that he just knew would comb my long hair really just perfectly and... Wait, wait, wait. Your hair isn't long. Did you get a haircut? Don't, don't, don't. You're getting ahead of the story. Don't, don't get ahead of the story. I'm sorry. Please. Okay, so you know how selling hair is really common? Yes, of course. Me. Who hasn't sold some hair, right? Can't walk a block without seeing a hair buying place. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> hair retail is a giant market, one of the biggest. Right, way up. So, so I sold my hair, which, I mean, I had all that hair. I, I made a lot of money, but all those real sweet combs turned from the most thoughtful gift of all time to such a bittersweet gift. I mean, bordering on mean. That does sound mean, but <laughs> at least you were hair money rich. But I wasn't rich because I used that money to buy a chain. For Jim's pocket watch? Yes. Oh my God. Yes. That pocket watch. I know. It's the best thing about Jim. Right? 
Oh, man. So great. It's just so perfect. Why I married him. <laughs> Why I would marry him. Only one thing wrong with it. No chain. No chain. No chain good enough. I found the chain good enough. Oh, it must have cost a fortune. It did. Oh, my God. You used all your hair money. I did use all my hair money. Only problem is, I sold the pocket watch. Jim! Jim. How could you? Well, I'll tell you how I could. I sold it to buy the set of combs for Della. Aw. Wait, how expensive were these combs? Real expensive, like expensive as a pocket watch. Well, I see what you're saying about ironic Christmas. Yeah, but that's not even the ironic part. Well, it is unironic part. Sure, but the real ironic part is that without her hair, I kind of don't love Della. And ironically, without that pocket watch... <laughs> how could you even love Jim? Exactly. I'll tell you how. Don't you see? It's right in front of you. You're both terrible sweet dummies who are both just so exact same samesies. Because we both sacrificed our one lovable thing about us for our loved one. And would do it again once our hair grew back? And once his watch grew back? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, but really because each of your love is fixated on the one thing of the other. Therefore, you're kind of perfect for each other. Meh. Ish. <laughs> okay, so maybe you call it a day, marriage-wise. Right. That rings true. It's expecting a little harder pushback on that. Why would we? Yeah, no. Maybe figure out the solution yourselves? Solution? What solution could there possibly be? Gift receipts. Gift, Gift receipts. receipts. You return the combs, you can buy your watch back, return the chain, you can buy some hair. Oh, doctor. That's perfect. You have saved this marriage. Just saved it. Nearly. Pending us returning the gifts and buying our watch and hair. That's right. That's exactly right. Then, then yes, our marriage will be saved. Uh, hang on. I just thought of something based on what you just said. You sold your stuff to get her this junk, right? Yeah. And you sold yours to buy his? We're very poor. Yeah. But I just got how poor exactly that you are. Yes, well, you know, so, okay. How is it... Poor as we have now established that you are, do you afford these sessions? Well, you know, I mean, we, we scrimp and our, we... Our, our copay... I know what your copay is, Jim. <laughs> you should be able to afford combs and a chain, but you can't? So I'll ask you again, and I'll remind you that it's against the law to lie in this room. So under threat of legal action and possible jail time, how do you afford these sessions? It's, it's also ironic, really. Is it? Well, we sold our marriage to pay for these sessions. <laughs> oh, oh, you poor, dumb, idiotic idiot lovebirds. Ethically, can you still see us? Le legally, can you? I mean, yes, legally and ethically, but maybe not morally. I'll have to ask a priest. 
but you sold your religion to start this practice. I know, but I kept the receipt. That sketch written by our dear friend Ben Acker. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's time once again to play Wheel, Wheel of, of Probing Questions. Oh, yes, it is. It's time to spin the wheel. <laughs> this time, Amy Mann is up. Amy, are you ready to spin the wheel? I'm ready to spin the wheel. All interviews should be like this. I totally agree. Ready? Give it a spin. Lucky four. Four. (laughs) Can there be be luck with 14 depression questions on a piece of paper? (laughs) Number four, what did the worst day of your depression feel like? Oh, boy. You can choose to describe it or create analogies to describe it. (laughs) (laughs) She's a lyricist. The thing about depression for me is that once it's gone, I'm kind of like, hey, that probably wasn't that bad. But, but then, I do, then I try to think about, I mean, I, I think that for me, there's a lot of immobilization. And um, it also is a twofer with anxiety. And I think what happens is that the depression is like a gigantic lid that tries to crush the feeling of anxiety and, uh, and feeling of being overwhelmed. Um, there's like part of it that seem, feels like I need to like rest up or, or marshal my resources or something uh, by, I guess, laying in bed forever. Um, but it just makes it impossible to do anything or to, or to interact with anyone. Uh, uh, yeah, it's that, that, um, anxiety is very, is paralyzing. So it's like, there's a lot of paralyzing and crushing and, and holding (laughs) down. Amy Mann, thanks so much for spinning the wheel of probing questions. Now I want like I want Terry Gross to start using a wheel all the time. <laughs> Maybe she does. Maybe she does. The thing about depression is that it affects your ability to see things the way they are. A rose becomes just a tacky plant. A symphony is just some sounds. The depressive perspective can be found quite easily at Google reviews where even landmarks that the whole world agrees are wonderful are seen as not so wonderful at all. We now present one-star reviews of places everyone has already agreed are wonderful. (laughs) This is Google Review Theater, American Edition. (laughs) The Grand Canyon. By Dylan. I've been to the Grand Canyon once before, when I was a kid. I took an opportunity to go there again as an adult. When I got there, the whole canyon was covered in clouds and mist. So you couldn't see anything. I brought my dog who barked at everyone. 
The people at the canyon were rude, <laughs> as all people in the state of Arizona are. <laughs> I found I couldn't take my dog anywhere. And it didn't matter, because I couldn't see anything. <laughs> One star. Gavin, it looks deep. I feel like I'm going to drown in that one star. Anthony, never been there. One star. Dennis, I got a $400 ticket for feeding an animal one star. Pavel, this tree stump, this is a tree stump. Tree height of six kilometers. Giants, same tree, cut down at the roots. One star. <laughs> Yosemite National Park. James. The name's pronunciation is horrific and grotesque. It's spelled Y-O-S-E-M-I-T-E. So we would naturally assume that it is pronounced Yosemite, but it is somehow pronounced Yosemite. How? Just how? Change the pronunciation now. One star. <laughs> Edgar. People go missing all the time without a trace. Keep your kids in your sight at all times. Never let anyone go anywhere alone, no matter how sick they are. Be careful. My reason for the one star is because they deny it. <laughs> One star. The Golden Gate Bridge. James. Well, I've been a tour guide for several companies in San Francisco, also a professional driver. I've been across the Golden Gate Bridge at least 800 times, sick of it. One star. The Art Institute of Chicago. Jacqueline. Unaccommodating and fairly rude about it. I left after an hour in the museum to get food, and I had more than half my pizza left. I wanted to save it, but they don't let you check food at the coat yet? <laughs> Fine but they could offer no alternatives for storing. They wouldn't refund my ticket for the next day, and quite frankly, they didn't make it common knowledge that food could not be stored. <laughs> Neither did they check my bag for food before I stored it. I had quite a bit of food in it. 
no consistency. One star. The, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Devin. Looks neat. Would love to go there someday. One star. Redwood National Forest. Tegan, I fell and didn't like it. I will never return to this terrible place. One star. <laughs> Entitlement is a wonderful thing. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. MakeItOK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We have a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, a way of maybe demystifying depression a little bit, make it not so scary, but let's not kid ourselves, it is a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help, and that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. It is not, it is not uh, often in public radio that you hear people whoop during underwriting announcements. <laughs> but, you know, that's when we took the show to uh, to health partners and they told us about this Make It Okay uh, campaign that they were doing. I'm like, I love a campaign whose name and mission are the same thing. Make it okay. Um, a reminder: talk to people about their costumes. You'll both be glad you did. We're going to take a short intermission. We'll be back in a little bit with much more music, more Google Review Theater, and a whole lot else coming up. Depression Orchestra, Trent Norton, Noah Levy, and Jenny Case, and Janie Winterbauer. And let's dive right into uh, a spin of the wheel. That's right, it's time once again for Wheel of Probing Questions. <laughs> Do you have a microphone on, Marie Cox? I have a microphone. Okay. Now, are you going to go for a dainty spin or like a real hardcore Let spin? Rip. Okay, here we yeah. go. <laughs> Planks and everything. Fourteen. What has been the most ineffective thing you ever tried for depression? <laughs> Whoa, I don't know if we have... You're supposed to take a minute? Um... <laughs> You know, I'm going to be uh, trying to work it away. Yeah, just the, the thing you've tried no, to... No, I'm actually seeing, like, try to work it away. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Like putting in hours at labor. Yeah, like trying to like thinking that I could do a thing that would make me feel better. Ah. Like there would be like a solution if I just tried hard enough. <laughs> tried hard at addressing it or like doing another I'd job be, job? You know, getting A pluses and like gold stars and the professional grown-up equivalents of those things. Right. The, the idea that if you just made that next achievement, there would be nothing to be depressed about. That's right. And people would like me, and I'd like myself. Ah. It's a shame that's not how it works. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> Anna Marie Cox, thanks for answering the Wheel of Probing Questions. Anytime you can chant with a thousand people about depression, Something good is happening in your life. <laughs> Here again with some more music, Amy Mann and Ted Leo. I was almost ready, right?
Time one more time to spin the wheel, wheel of probing question with Ted Leo. There's a mic right there. There it is. Give it a spin, Ted. Okay. Six. Six. I left my list over here. We're more casual with this show. <laughs> what, if anything, good has come from your depression? Well, it's an opportunity, right? I mean, it's an opportunity to, uh, to learn uh, about yourself and to work <laughs> on relationships. And um, I've been somewhat successful in, in doing that. <laughs> so that's, yeah, I would leave it at that. That works. <laughs> Thanks Better? for joining us on the Wheel of Probing. Once again, one-star reviews of places everyone has already agreed are wonderful. Google Review Theater, International Edition. The Great Wall of China. <laughs> Sybil, please take some cat food before you take the cable car to the top. There are seven cats starving to death, blind, disabled, and don't even have the energy to eat, waiting for their deaths. One star. The Great Pyramids. Ancient, interesting, but if you're not a history fan like me, I suggest you don't go there. One star. That's more a review of the people reading the review. <laughs> the Eiffel Tower. Marius. A big tower, and that's all. <laughs> but the neighborhood matters. A lot of construction sites. Some kind of a park full of dust and sand and workers. A lot of shops trying to steal or sell stuff. Pathetic experience. And unfortunately, full of French people. <laughs> Misery. And trash. One star. Iris Engel. Do something about those hornets, and I'll think about maybe coming back to this glorified beehive. One star. should point out that Iris put six exclamation marks on That's the end true. of them. <laughs> Vanessa, it's just a lame and short tower, just like a normal tower, that means nothing. One star. The Louvre. Tyler. It is a pretty good museum. <laughs> there was nothing in English, though. 
are in the 21st century and you guys think you are the best art museum in the world? The French need to learn that the rest of the world will never and should not learn French. You guys are very self-righteous and arrogant for those beliefs. One star. Madison, very disappointing. The art is not good. It's like three really cool painting and the frames are good, but other than that, not really worth going. One star. Michel Kahn, Mona Lisa was too small, one star. The Taj Mahal. Abhishek. Taj Mahal is one of the seven wonders of the world, but I don't think so. <laughs> Imagine you didn't see Taj Mahal and you know that it's a wonder. Now you go and what you find? Just a makbara and pillars. Taj Mahal is good, but not beautiful or wonderful. You cannot spend your full day here. One star. <laughs> Bora Bora. Leo. Do Bora Bora have thunderstorm? One star. <laughs> There's so much more I want to know about that guy. <laughs> I was told this place was thunderstorm central. <laughs> Do it even have them? And finally, Machu Picchu. Jennifer, kind of old. <laughs> and worn down. One star. <laughs> That's Google Review Theater. One more time. Uh, oh, I'm gonna say a little something about this one. Uh, we played this song uh, on, I, I think it was the show that Amy was on, that Amy was a guest on. And then later on, we did a show where it was these uh, people wrote in about the songs that help them uh, when their depression gets really, really bad. And uh, somebody wrote in and said, for me, it's this song by Ted Leo and Amy Mann performing as the both because it, it, I feel like I got to know them and I feel like I got to think about friendship a little bit. So this song really helped one of our listeners and uh, we're gonna hear it. It's very sweet. Yeah, this is our song about friendship. That's right.
The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media superintendent. Kate Moose is executive producer. Technical direction from Johnny Vince Evans and John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. 
The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and MakeItOK.org. MakeItOK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation on this topic can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter, and come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation happening there with your fellow thwadballs. Fun place to hang out. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Doc, that's the problem. What if I was to tell you I'm Piachi? This great big smile is just for show. What if I was to tell you this is just grease paint? Would you say I'm a hopeless case? Say it ain't so. I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know